Hello listeners, Sachin here. Hope you're well. Thanks for checking out this latest episode of Fans, in which I chat to former Football Association Director of Communications, Adrian Bevington, about his love of Middlesbrough. You have made a very good decision. Before you do, I need to make a couple of things clear. Firstly, there was a technical issue early on in the recording of this episode that led to a section of it becoming corrupted and ultimately lost. It was a brief but important section as it contained Adrian talking about the role he has recently taken as a non-executive director at Hartlepool United. Adrian was keen to make clear during the episode that he's very much enjoying and committed to this role. And as that section was ultimately lost, I'm more than happy to make that clear now. Adrian is very much enjoying and committed to his role as a non-executive director at Hartlepool United. Secondly, during the episode, and again early on, you'll hear Adrian and I chat about Newcastle and perhaps wonder why we don't mention the Saudi-led takeover of the club, given A, it happened relatively recently, and B, it's big news. Well, that's simple, really. It's because Adrian and I spoke before the takeover happened, only a few days before, but before nevertheless. And finally, while I have your attention... Whether you're a long-time listener of fans or coming to it for the first time, it would be hugely appreciated if you could rate and review it on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. This is a great way for other people to discover fans, something I'm always keen to happen. A five-star review would be especially appreciated. And generally, tell your friends and family about fans and people you work with and people you meet in the street. On second thoughts, don't do the last of those. It's a bit weird. Anyway, I'll stop rambling now and let you get on with listening to my chat about Support Middlesbrough with the excellent Adrian Bevington. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Nekrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Middlesbrough is a man of many talents, including recording a podcast while packing for a holiday. It's Adrian Bevington. Adrian, how are you? Good morning, Sachin. Delighted to be with you. Delighted to have you on, especially as I just said in that introduction, you're a busy man, uh, packing for, oh, I don't know, I was going to ask, you're going on holiday today, have you Have you finished your packing? I'm, I'm, I'm mid-packing, the bulk <laughs> has been done, thankfully mostly uh, to my wife's credit, because I was travelling yesterday, but uh, we're almost there and we fly this afternoon, so Fantastic. like most people who've maybe not holidayed for a long time, I can't wait to get on that plane and hopefully a bit of sunshine. So is this your first holiday since covid I was traveling. I actually had a meeting with Sven Joran Eriksson in the March of 2020, yeah. literally just before we all got locked down. That was the last time I was abroad. Oh, wow. So, where are you going? I'm going down to Mallorca. Excellent. Very uh, nice. Can't wait. Oh, excellent. Yeah. As you get, get, England is very miserable at the moment. We're recording this in very early October. Um, I'm in, I'm in London, not quite sure where you are, but it's very grey and very wet where I am. And so, yeah, it'd be lovely to get out of here and get into sunny Mallorca, I, I guess. I can't wait. Excellent. 
Well, I really am delighted you're on, not, not just because you're uh, doing it on a day that's slightly inconvenient for you, but just because I wanted to get you on this podcast for, for a long time to talk about Middlesbrough. I was just saying before we start recording, I've been, I was planning for this episode a few days ago, um, and it might be the longest agenda I've written for an episode of fans. Just so much to talk about when it comes to Middlesbrough. So I'll get through as much of that as possible. Um, before, before we do, I just want to talk about you a little bit, if that's okay. So as I said in, in the introduction... Uh, you're a man of many talents, uh, very successful. That's questionable. Well, I think you are. Don't, don't be modest, Adrian. You very much are. Uh, incredibly successful and varied career. Currently a director of football strategy at, at Cred Investments, which I believe is an organisation that assists athletes secure their financial future post-retirement. That's uh, yeah, excellent. That sounds really, a really, really sort of... Uh, must be a very fulfilling job, I guess, as well, as well as... It's, uh, built, it's built on FinTech all. as well, a great data model behind it, which is obviously where the world is moving and has moved to. So that's been quite a journey for me as well, personally. Excellent, excellent. And you've also found the time to join the board of Hartlepool United as a non-executive director. Um, but I think it's fair to say you're probably best known for your time in the Football Association. Uh, many roles there across 17 years, including Director of Communications and Managing Director of Club England. And when I think of you... Um, the image that most strongly comes to mind, uh, you mentioned him just now, is you sat next to Sven Joran Eriksson at an England press conference before and after an England game um, during that sort of early noughties period. And that felt like a really heady time for the national team. First overseas manager, golden generation, global superstar in David Beckham, emergence of Wayne Rooney, the wags, not to mention the usual England tournament heartbreak. Um, yeah, I remember it so well. I was in my early naughty, um, I, I was in my early twenties, I should say, at the time. So it was a heady time for England, and it was a heady time for me as well. Um, I'm just wondering how intense it felt during the time, and how sort of almost twenty years on, you reflect on all that on all that yeah. period now. You, you, you've covered a lot of the ground there, Sasha. And yes, it was. You know, look, it was an incredible privilege to have the job, yeah. um, and I never, you know, believed that I would, you know, have, have such an experience, but. The, the, it took a lot out of me. It was only actually when I left the FA um, in, at the end of 2014 that I realised to what extent it had taken out of me because you, you're looking after the England team and, and look, the final four or five years were primarily as the, the MD of the England team, but I'd taken communications as a directorship back under my uh, wing as well, so to speak, at that time. Not so hands-on every day, but what, what people don't sort of can't fo- possibly fully appreciate particularly during that period, the level of exposure the team was having was quite incredible. Um, you had, you know, the, the newspapers were were so dominant. I'm not saying that they're not they're not dominant, but they were so dominant. And this was pre-social media. And beyond that, you know, you'd, you'd have England games, but you're working every weekend anyway and every day, and it could be a lot of strategic stuff going on that you're planning where you're investing in the grassroots football, the development of the women's game, Wembley, St. George's Park. You're involved heavily in all of that. But then you've got all the governance piece that's going on and the disciplinary side. So your whole weekend, you could not plan a weekend, and I didn't plan a weekend for 15 years because, you know, five o'clock on a Saturday evening, your world could change because of something that had happened anywhere in a football game, anywhere mm. in the country. So you would be holding to that. And that was... That was the beauty, but also the challenge of the job. So I don't want to come across as someone who, you know, is, is negative about it, but it did take a lot out of me. And I think I, I realised during 2013 when it was the 150th anniversary of the, the FA and I was the executive lead for that. And we had to put a fixture programme together and various 
sort of blue ribboned events. And, you know, that in combination with everything else that was going on, um, I kind of realized at the end of that year, I, I, I've, I've run my course here. And I knew I wasn't actually as effective by that point as what I'd been maybe at my absolute peak of my sort of time at the FA, which was probably sort of 2000, well, the, 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 the first decade would be when I was at my kind mm. of strongest, I believe, personally. Yeah. Are you almost grateful that you, you missed out on the, on the social media sort of boom um, as it is now? Because as you said, at the, t- at the time, the newspapers were, were really powerful. So that's almost a counterbalance uh, to it. But I mean, then again, I can imagine now doing the role you uh, did with, uh, with all the social media sort of influx and all the stuff you have to deal with there. That could, with players as well, being on social media and all the, all the stuff that comes with that. Might, would two be ways. I, mean, I, actually, I think the guys now have got an advantage because they can use social media way more effectively to actually... Um, manage the situation. The relationship between the, the players and and the England setup um, is, is way better than it's ever been. And I think mm. that is down to Gareth Southgate, who is someone you know. I've known Gareth since he was a player. You know, obviously Captain Borough. Um, he's someone I consider a friend, and he's such an erudite individual that he is made for this job yeah. to handle what's gone on. He's set the culture. We want two other people, but Gareth's the lead for that. And I think combining Gareth's awareness of how to manage relationships, and I'm, you know, that's the one regret I do have. I left, I was part of the appointment of Gareth the 21s when he was head coach there. I'd love to have worked with Gareth as the England manager because I think life would have been, um, I'm not saying easy, it never is easy, but more straightforward because of the way of which Gareth approaches things. And then with social media, yep, there's all of the difficult challenges and some of the real nasty stuff that we've seen. Um, that's, you know, unfortunately um, hit a lot of individual players hard yeah. over, the, over recent years. However, it does give them the opportunity to become individuals in their own right. And, you know, there were certain things over time where obviously we were dealing with um, elements within the media that, you know, were, were a challenge for us. And we weren't, we were still relying on the media to be our main conduit. conduit. I think yeah. now you're going to the public and that's mm. been a big game changer. Yeah. No, as I was saying, I mean, when, when you were, you know, I said at the peak of your powers in the, in the noughties, I mean, the newspapers were all powerful, weren't they? But I guess, as, you, as you're saying, there's a, an, another way now to get the message out. And I totally agree. I think Gareth Southgate is just a phenomenal figurehead for the national team. He's, I don't think he's put a foot wrong. Um, he's fantastic. He since, really is. He deserves all the praise he gets for it. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Um, I was going to ask if you're still in touch with Sven. You clearly are. Uh, how is he? And it's it's all lovely for me to think that you're you're still friends with him. Um, I saw, I saw in my mind's eye, I just see you and him together. So for me, it's quite warm and lovely to know you're still friends. Uh, we went through quite a lot together. I saw one or two other people, David Davis and Paul Newman, and people like that, who also were you know heavily around that time. Um, yeah, Sven's someone I, I, I've I've managed to maintain a great relationship with, and. He will invariably ring me from time to time when he just wants to check something, when he's maybe doing some other pieces of work in Sweden or a bit of media work somewhere in the world just to check some facts or help him on one or two other things. And yeah, I spent you know some time with him in Sweden with a couple of other people. And he's just got a really nice manner about him. And that was the brilliant thing about working with Sven, that he, for all of the uh, stuff that was going on, he, he very, very rarely got phased by it. Mm. And that level of calmness, I think, you know, you, 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 there's a lot of narratives out there at the moment, some of them being that maybe with a different manager, we might have won the World Cup in Germany or the Euros in Portugal, etc. 
And that may well be the case, I don't know. But what I do know is he took a team that was devoid of confidence, that was struggling, unfortunately, at the end of Kevin's reign. And he very quickly put them into a team that was winning. Mm. He actually only lost one qualifying game. Um, and that was when the qualifying groups, you'd have to say, were a little bit more competitive. Yeah. Um, he lost one qualifying game in three campaigns and took us to quarterfinals on three occasions. Mm. Now, maybe we should have gone further. I wish we had gone further. But for penalty shootouts, and that's a different conversation. Yeah. You know, he, 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 I think he, 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 he had a real knack of working with star players and allowing them to be star players. Mm. And allowing them to breathe and so you know he that that was a real talent for him in that regard in my opinion yeah i said he had he had some absolute superstars to deal with as well at that time <laughs> i'd like to like lots of beckham and rooney um i mean what's he up to now i was, I was sort of wikipediaing him and doing my research for this thing his last job he had was with the philippines wasn't he it looks like he's finally stopped managing football teams yeah, he's managed he, about 700 <laughs> he's still a football <laughs> obsessive um you know he watches and he you know watches the english game you know Absolutely, you know, every element of it and the European football. I still think he would love to carry on working given the chance. And he's probably looking at Claudio Ranieri yeah. at Watford. I've not had this conversation with him, but I can imagine him sitting there thinking, I mean, I need to get myself back in here somewhere. I can imagine that's his thought process. Well, if he sits tight, he'll get the Watford job. I mean, everyone's <laughs> going to eventually have a go with it. Yeah, we should say we're recording 24 hours after Claudio Ranieri uh, was appointed Watford manager on a very ambitious two-year contract. <laughs> Can't quite see him fulfilling that. So, yes, when may, maybe I'm, the... not, I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as dismissive of it as others. And I listened to a debate last night and look, that's just the way they do it. Yeah. And in the main... It has worked for them, whether we like it or not, whether people get hung up about the way that managers are treated. Apart from the one relegation, it has actually worked for them over a sustained period. Yeah, no, I've got I've got a lot of time for Watford. I mean, I wrote an article about them a few years ago where I was kind of it was kind of a myth breaking article. I think there's a lot of misinformation and kind of suspicion around Watford, but actually, you know, I've covered them quite regularly during my time in the Guardian. Actually, when you go there, you realise they're a real kind of homely family orientated club there's people who've been working there for years who absolutely you know they, they really look after their own Watford the you know I, yeah. I had a little spell when I first left the FA in fact they were the first pe- first club that I actually did any work with when oh, I okay. left on a consultancy basis and um, yeah, they, they came from you know they've they punched above their weight yeah. in reality for a sustained period and yeah the managerial thing is, is one piece of it but I heard someone else describing this last night I think it was James Horncastle and he was explaining how, you know, the Pozzos are football people. They've been around the football industry, you know, and I, 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 I use that phrase loosely because I'm not sure what the definition of football person is. <laughs> but when, when, I, when I say that, they've been involved in the football business yeah. for decades now. And they've been relatively successful with Udinese. They, they've punched above their weight with Watford. They have their method. You know, they, 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 they definitely know the football market. There's no doubt about that. So, you know, I'm not sitting here saying everything they do is perfect and I agree with every decision, but I don't think you can just simply have a one-track approach to them saying that everything they do is wrong because they wouldn't be in the Premier League if everything they did was wrong. No, absolutely, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think I just think sort of final word listen, on the manager situation. As you said, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a model that's completely sort of proven to be a successful one since Potts took charge. I think one thing I would say about it is, 
I just think there's a possible sort of law of diminishing returns coming in here where they were getting some really quite good managers before, but they're burning through so many now. And I think probably so many are sort of suspicious of sort of going and working there that actually the ones they're getting are getting sort of less and less sort of almost, I don't want to say credible, that's probably a bit rude, but just, yeah, they're, they're almost in a vicious cycle now. They're getting sort of less sort of... Um, uh, successful, proven, high-quality managers. So they're just going to keep churning through them quicker because the ones are getting... I mean, I can't... I mean, with all due respect to Claudia, I can't quite see him lasting even probably beyond the I season, think, to, to be honest. The, the interesting dynamic there is they obviously have a way of operating within the club. You know, um, Mr. Pozzo's down the training ground, trying mm. to the time. Um, they, you know, the the, the, the head coach there, because in, in, in reality, is a head coach. Yeah. So my interpretation of it is that they were in a club where the head coach knows what his remit is. And yes, you go into that with your eyes open that the reality is the tenure of most coaches there is not a long tenure. However, you know, there are other, you know, there are so many other models. And look, to a lot of managers, that, that model wouldn't work anyway because they want more control. Mm-hmm. But in reality, what they're doing is what happens and has happened for many, many years around Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, true. I think, I think, look, the, it probably isn't for a lot of managers or coaches, but I still think a Premier League club based on the outskirts of London in, in Hertfordshire is going to be attractive to a lot of people. That is a good point. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to struggle for a nice house around around that part of the world. Uh, excellent. Right, let's move away from Watford and let's talk about the club we're, we're really here to talk about, and that is Middlesbrough. As I said, so, so much to talk about, such a sort of rich and interesting history. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the area because I'm a little bit confused. So um, I was very much under the impression that the town was uh, sort of part, very much part of the northeast of England, very much alongside Newcastle and Sunderland, which technically it is. But from the research I've done, uh, it blew my mind to find out that Middlesbrough is technically part of Yorkshire. So more aligned to places like Leeds, Sheffield and Bradford. But I'm convinced, Adrian, for watching football in the 90s, which is sort of my my era, that when Borough <laughs> were in the Premier League and regularly playing the likes of um, Newcastle and Sunderland, that those games against Newcastle and Sunderland were seen as derbies. So are Newcastle and Sunderland your, lo- your local and your main rivals, or is it actually the likes of Leeds, Bradford and Sheffield Wednesday? Okay, so first and foremost, Middlesbrough historically is North Yorkshire. Okay. The Yorkshire cricket team. When, 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 you, when, when you had to be born in Yorkshire to play for the dominating Yorkshire cricket teams, Middlesbrough people qualified to play for Yorkshire. Well, there Sound you go. I did not know that. So, so I'm actually on the board of the North Riding County FA, which is based in Stokesley, which is part of the outskirts of Middlesbrough. So it's very much historically in Yorkshire. Then Teesside was formed and then Cleveland came on the back of that as, as, as district authorities. Um, <clears throat> I think most fans would say Newcastle and Sunderland are the derbies. Mm. Um, but Newcastle is 49 miles away north, and I think Sunderland is about 40 miles away north, maybe a little bit less. So then you've got some people who grew up maybe a little, slightly bit older than me, but my generation who, when Middlesbrough returned to the first division in the mid-70s, and Leeds were the top team that they were, Leeds-Middlesbrough was a big game. Now, I'm not saying Leeds would look at it as their main derby in the same way that Newcastle and Sunderland look at themselves as their main derby. Um, But because Middlesbrough is quite a distance from any of the other bigger clubs, Leeds for me was a really... I actually took as much out of 
watching Middlesbrough Leeds as, as, as Sunderland or Newcastle. And, you know, I had, the, I had the pleasure of playing for Middlesbrough Schoolboys as well, at, you know, at, at a senior level. And, you know, I remember going to play away at Leeds, you know, and that felt like a really big rivalry. Not, not Bradford, not Sheffield, Leeds. Le- Leeds is just a slightly, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar distance to Newcastle, just a maybe a little, a little bit further, but that it's, 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 it's almost equidistant. So do you consider yourself a Yorkshireman? Um, yeah, I mean, I was technically born in Teesside. Teesside was born in 68. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I'm from a family. You know, we would always class ourselves as North Yorkshire, but it's been a bit of a, because of the changing of the districts and the, 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 the lines, it's kind of over time. It, I think what Yorkshire stopped playing cricket in, I'm from Acklam in Middlesbrough originally, which is the part of Middlesbrough, and that's where Yorkshire used to come and play. They played the West Indies in the 60s at Acklam Park. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and I used to, I've seen Gordon Grange playing for Hampshire at Acklam Park and Alan mm. Lamb for, um, I think it was North Hans. I've seen a lot of big players play there, but when Yorkshire stopped coming to Acklam Park, I think that was a big turn-off for people considering themselves part of Yorkshire. Older people of the general of, of this area would definitely say that they were from North Yorkshire. Like my parents are absolutely adamant that's what their, mm. you know, their background is. That's really interesting. Yeah, so just in my head, I was just like yeah, Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Leeds. Yeah, just in my head, it was Middlesbrough, Sunderland and Newcastle are sort of a bit of a, a bit of a triangle in the northeast. And I, I'm a fully aware Newcastle, Sunderland is the main rival in that area, but I just felt Middlesbrough was kind of connected. It's, still, yeah. look, it's still a big to the Middlesbrough fans, the Newcastle and Sunderland game is still the, the, the big game yeah. they look forward to. And when the two teams or the three teams play one another, there is still a big derby feeling about it. Okay. Is there one that you'd rather beat than the other? If I gave you a choice in one season to beat either Newcastle or Sunderland, which one would you I'm, I'm very. I think I'm different to a lot of people from this area because I've lived away for 20-odd years and, and returned recently that I... Um, I actually, you know, I, I love going to watch games, particularly at Newcastle. Newcastle, um, St. James Park is one of my favourite stadiums that I've mm. ever been to. I've been fortunate to go to a lot. I just think it's so fantastic the way it's positioned in the middle of the, it's almost like the cathedral in the city. Yeah. Something special about that. So I actually would like to see all the North East teams doing well because I think it's good for the area. Yeah, just on St James's Park. I've never actually been there as a either as a journalist or as a as a supporter. But me, and my my wife and daughter went to Newcastle this summer. Like like you know, like a lot of people, like yourselves, like your family, haven't travelled abroad since yeah. lockdown. Uh, so we've done a lot of sort of staycations, as they're called. And we went to Newcastle for a few days because m- my wife and I, neither of us had been to the city, and we sort of spent a, a sort of long weekend there and had a great time. But I, I was so struck by the location of St James's Park. I'd heard it was in the in the city centre essentially, but you don't realise how much it's in the city centre. So you go well, there. We were just well, it's the city centre. I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, you you get you can get off. You know, Gray's Monument. You know, wherever you want to get off the railway station, you can walk to that stadium in you know within five ten minutes. Yeah. Well, we're walking. Exactly. Yeah, we were walking to get some lunch somewhere. We'd been a bit of shopping in the town centre. We we're just walking to lunch. I sort of turned to my right and went bloody hell, I think that's St. James's Park. And it was, it's just like, it was just like, there's like shops, shops, traffic, you know, traffic lights, St. James's Park shop, shops. And it's just in the middle. It's, it's a really good city, location. They've done a great job in Newcastle over yeah. years now. And it's got a real vibrancy to it. And you don't hear many people go there and not think that they've, that, you know, everyone's positive about it, which is, it's great for the city itself. Oh, that's no, a lovely place. Yeah. And we stayed in Keyside, which is, which is absolutely gorgeous. Um, right. Let's talk about your first Middlesbrough game. So it was Middlesbrough v Mansfield Town at Ayrton Park in October 1975. 
in the Anglo-Scottish Cup. So there'll be a lot of people listening to this who have no idea what the Anglo-Scottish Cup is. So it's a tournament that ran from 1975 to 1981, comprising of 16 English teams and eight Scottish clubs. And it was designed to bring together clubs which had mit- from England and Scotland, which had missed out on Europe. And Borough, which I'm sure you're fully aware of, actually won it that season, which was the inaugural year, via victory over... Fulham in a in a two legged final. So if my maths is right, you were only about four years old uh, when that Mansfield game happened uh, in October seventy five. Mm-hmm. Very very young. So I'm presuming very very vague memories of that game as well. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm pretty certain that's my first game. But um, you know, the, the, it may there may have been other visits beforehand. I mean, I used to be. I can't remember not being obsessed by it, mm. and I used to get taken. My my my. my my, my, my grandparents and uh, my aunts used to live quite close to Ayrson Park. So on a match day before, I, I would often get taken down to the, uh, the, the old Ayrson Park gates that are now outside of the riverside and st- be stood at the gates while the game was on because I was too young to go at the game. But I'd, I'd be taken into the club shop, which was run by Pat Charlton, Jack Charlton's wife. Oh, okay. They oh. opened that when Jack became the manager of Middlesbrough. And, you know, the, I, I can remember, you know, you know, getting uh, photographs, black and white photographs at the time of the players and stuff. While it, you could hear the roar, and there's probably mm. like 35,000 inside Ayrson Park, literally a few feet away. But I was just too young to go to a lot of those games. So the Anglo-Scottish Cup, I do remember, I remember I was sat in what they call the East End at Ayrson Park that was, it was rebuilt for the World Cup in 66. And walking up the steps and, and, and looking across at the Holgate End, which is the cop end of Middlesbrough, and it wasn't a massive crowd. I think it was like 15,000 there that day, something like that, um, because it was the Anglo-Scottish Cup. <laughs> but um, just, you know, I can, I can distinctly still, it's really weird, maybe it's your memory playing tricks with you, but kind of the smell, which at the time I wouldn't have known was sort of pipe tobacco and that, that kind mm. of smell that was in the air. But yeah. I, I can remember like a rich smell being there. I hope it was that. <laughs> 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 probably was a few other things as well. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it was just a night match and, you know, we had a player called Alan Foggan who was quite a rotund guy. He'd been one of the top scorers in the first division the year before. Uh, and he, I remember the crowd singing, I can, I genuinely can remember the crowd singing uh, Fatty, Fatty Foggan. That was their, that was their <laughs> for him. Probably wouldn't be too popular these days. No. Very politically incorrect in 2021, yeah. Yeah, that was, so that's my kind of, first memory of that and then I would have gone on the next game I remember would have been I remember my dad taking me to see we played Berry in the FA in the FA Cup in the first week of January in 76 um, a stunning 0-0 draw and Phil Borsen being sent off um, so that's the first two games I can really remember Okay, well, I mean, Ayrson Park, which is was, was Middlesbrough's ground for 92 years, uh, up until they moved to, as you mentioned, the Riverside in 1995. Um, it was a ground I was far too young to ever visit. Um, I'm curious to what it was like. My memories of seeing it on TV as a kid was that it was quite a tight, compact ground, probably a place that generated a lot of noise on a, on a sort of night match. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because as a, as a space, it was a big space, okay. a really big pitch, um, and there's a lot of width either side. And so, if you, I remember reading in Simon Inglis's books, The Football Grounds of Great Britain, which was a bit of a Bible to me when I was a young lad. And he described the design wasn't, it wasn't too dissimilar to the original design of Old Trafford, insofar as the, the, the old Old Trafford, when they had the, the open ends and so forth, mm. because of the, 
not to the same quite level of capacity, but, you know, I mean, they've, they've got crowds of, you know, I think in the biggest crowds are 50, 52, 53,000 in the late 40s. They, I mean, I, I, I went to some really great games as a kid. I remember, I remember being in a game when we played Wolves in the FA Cup quarterfinal in 81, where the official crowd was about 37,000, but there wasn't 37,000. <laughs> If there was 37,000 on the official capacity that day, there was probably nearer 50,000 there. It was, it was just so full, the whole ground. Mm. Um, yeah, Ayrson Park was a, you know, it was my spiritual home from a football point of view and so many amazing memories there. It, it was, you know, by the time it was, we moved to the Riverside, it'd, be, it'd become so tired. The capacity was down about 23, 24,000, something like that, maybe even less. Parts of the ground clearly, you know, the back end of some of the corners that were open were were, were, were not safe. So that you know, it, it needed either massively updating or moving when Steve moved it. Um, I don't think away fans had a particularly enjoyable experience a lot of the time going to Essen Park, and I'm aware of many, many stories over the years, particularly in the 70s and 80s. And I was I was a ball boy for a whole season in 84, 85, um, when the crowds were the lowest in the history of the club when there were the average crowd was less than 5,000 in a stadium that really was a 42,000 capacity. Mm. So it was, they were dark days. Yeah. Well, we'll come on to the eighties um, shortly. Cause yeah, a very eventful time, which I know was a really, really sort of key time in your, in your, in your life supporting Borough. Um, yeah. Just to go back to that sort of seventies period, you mentioned there, Jack Charlton was the manager of Middlesbrough. Uh, he took charge in May, 1973, remained at the club until April 77. And it was a good team in the seventies, wasn't it as well? I mean, uh, you, as a, you won the Anglo-Scottish Cup um, in in 70, was it was 75, wasn't it? And 75, then 75, 76, sorry. Yeah. Having previously been promoted as champions from um, the second division. And in the first season in the top flight, 74, 75, he finished seventh and only five points behind the champions, Derby County, which, as you pointed out to me in an email, was uh, last time Middlesbrough sort of seriously fought for the title. So, very good team under Jack Charlton. You are, as we said, very young at the time. Do you have sort of a real sense that you were supporting a very good team at that time? It was an exciting time in Borough's history. No, I, I, if I'm being honest with you, I, I can't really because while I would be taken to games intermittently, you know, I can't remember the 74-75 season. I don't have any memory whatsoever of it. Mm. I was obviously just way too young. Yeah. But that, that, I, I know a lot of the players from that team and and a lot of people who watched during that period at one point Middlesbrough were going for all three trophies you know they 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 they, they were they lost 1-0 in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup at Birmingham who they'd beaten 3-0 home and away in the league so and they'd never been past the quarterfinal of the FA Cup at that point that was a massive blow for them hmm. i think at easter weekend they were second and i think there was a famous game at, at Ayrson Park where they were beating Derby 1-0 in the last minute and there was a back pass and the pitches obviously then were not great. And the board yeah. wasn't a clean back pass and um, Kevin Hector nipped in and they equalised. Now you do wonder, would Derby have gone on and won the league that year? You know, it was such a close time. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the title race was so tight that year. Um, I mean, I know Middlesbrough beat Liverpool 1-0 in the, penult- in the final game at Essen Park, the penultimate game. And I think that stopped Liverpool winning the title. So I don't remember that, but I do, re- you know, I, I remember um, gradually 
you know, the last couple of years, you, you, Jack Charlton was just a, such a big name that you'd go on a holiday. You know, we didn't go on, on exotic holidays then, but we'd still go on holiday every year. And wherever we went, we we would, um, you know, people would say, oh, you support blah, blah, blah. You'd say Middlesbrough, and they just immediately say Jack Charlton. Yeah, well, obviously, and we won the World Cup, what, less than 10 yeah, years before? Still, I don't you know, know. He's still a young man, really. Yeah. He was on TV a lot, Jack Charlton, during that time. Yeah. You know, even a kids' programme on a Sunday morning, a soccer skills sort of thing. And, you know, Graeme Sooners at that point wasn't the big name that he, he became at Liverpool, but Graeme Sooners was still a massively regarded player at Middlesbrough and a damn good player at Middlesbrough. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, I remember having my first Borough shirt, probably it was about 1975, something like that. And I had number 11 on the back, which was David Armstrong, who another, another player who probably didn't get the international recognition he might have achieved, but, you know, he had a wonderful career. He, he played something like 350 games without missing a game at Borough, then went on to be a stalwart in the Southampton team with Kevin Keegan and, and, and that group of players. Yeah, we I mean, should say that 74-75 season, as you, as you said, incredibly tight. I mean, only 11 points separated the top uh, 11 teams. Derby finished with seven, uh, 53 points and QPR in 11th finished with 42 points. I said Middlesbrough seventh with uh, 48 points and only missed out on, on the title by, by five points. I mean, it's unthinkable now to have a title race that tight yeah. between the top 11 teams. Essentially. Bear in mind that have been Borough's first season in top five for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely incredible achievement. Um, but let's, let's get on to the 80s because this is, as, as you also said, in your very, I should say, very excellent notes that you sent me, the most detailed notes I've ever had from a fan's guest about their, their time sporting clubs. I do appreciate that. They were really, really in, excellent, interesting notes. Um, yeah, the 80s was your sort of peak notable period in your borough sporting life and specifically the period 86 1986 1989 so you're a teenager watching a borough team managed by bruce Rioch, who achieved two successive promotions finished second in division three in 86 87 and then third in division two in 87 88 to take you uh, to take borough back to the top flight having been relegated from it in in 82 um, yeah, must have been an incredibly exciting time in, in your life as a Borough fan, given your age, you know, you're a teenager, which is always exciting. The team is really good, achieving back-to-back promotions. And the fact, as I also know from your excellent notes, you're going home and away at this time as well. Yeah, it was it was an unbelievable time, I've got to say. Um, I actually feel quite emotional talking about it, to be honest with you. It was such a... The, the connection between the, the club, the players and the fans during that period was... It was very, very special. And the quarterfinal FA Cup day I mentioned with Wolverhampton Wanderers in 81, which we, you know, again, we had a great opportunity to, to, to crack on and, you know, reach, a, reach an FA Cup semi-final at least or maybe a cup final with a good team, people like Craig Johnston, David Armstrong, David Hodgson, who all went on to big moves. That's, they all left the club that summer. They lost the replay 3-1 extra time at Molyneux and... The team just got sold off. We got relegated the following year in 82. And the demise, through all of my sort of secondary school education, we were we were a dreadful side. And, the, you know, there was no money. The ground became, it was just a decayed ground. The crowds went down to, you know, 5,000 from being always 20,000 type of thing. And it was a weird scenario till we reached the point of the, 85, 86, when Willie Madron, who was a tremendous player, Willie Madron, is regarded by real experts in the game, people like Paddy Barkley, great journalist, mm. who he, he would say Willie Madron, you know, was one of the best England centre-backs he ever saw, but never actually got a full cap. Um, Willie was the manager, and he brought through a load of really good young players, 
but the results just didn't work for him. And Bruce came in the February, couldn't quite keep us up. I remember being at Shrewsbury on the last day of the season. We got beat 2-1. We needed to win. They needed a draw. It was a dreadful day. Some serious violence went on that day. Um, and it, 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 the whole place was just, it was it was not, not a good place to be. And then that summer, consortium got formed. Obviously, Steve Gibson was one of the leaders of that. Um, Colin Henderson was the ICI man. Graham Fordy, who became the commercial manager of the club, came from the breweries. And out of nowhere, from training on random pitches all over, like my school pitch at one point, they, they the, the players who were nearly all local boys, barring people like Bernie Slaven, who coming for 25 grand from Albion Rovers, they just got on this run. And Bruce managed to get them playing superb football. The crowds over once the belief started coming back, the momentum built, and it was it was like a steam train. Mm. We got it on. We we played Wigan on the last day of the league season that in eighty or the second last game eighty six. 87 and got promoted then. Went up the following season. I think we only added one player, Dean Glover, who was a reserve at Aston Villa. He came in and we started okay and then hit our straps September, well, October time. And then we were always around the top three or four that year. And that season was just, wow. We went to Everton, who were the champions of the first division, played them a trilogy of games, 1-1 at Goodison, 2-2 at Ayrton Park, my favourite ever game in Middlesbrough. And then what we got beat 2 1 extra time in the replay, third, the second replay at Goodison. We were a good team, played great football. Mowbray, Pallister, Stephen Pears in goal, Colin Cooper, um, Gary Parkinson, you know, uh, Gary Hamilton, who was a top player, sadly got really badly bad injured and didn't de- develop to what he couldn't, couldn't achieve what he should have achieved because of that. Bernie Slaven up front, Stuart Ripley, you know, some good players there. Did you say there was a two-two draw with Everton? That's your. Did you say it was your favourite ever game at Ayrton Park? So was was yeah, my favourite Borough game. Yeah, why, why is so? Why is that? I mean, that... it was just the atmosphere that night. I mean, yeah. you had to queue for two hours to get in that night. Um, Everton were you know still people like Trevor Stephen, Peter yeah. Reid, great playing. team, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Under Howard Kendall, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And you know we played ever so well at Goodison that 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 night. I think Everton took the lead then we equalised in the last minute of normal time and the noise, I was in the Holgate end behind the goal, the noise was just quite unbelievable and then in injury time we took the lead, we got 2-1 and it was just a breathtaking game and and then in the, and we already knew we were going to play Liverpool in the next round Okay. <laughs> so it was like a real you know sense of expectation Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. This was the fourth round I think and, and then Unfortunately, in the very last minute, we, we, we lost the ball near the corner flag at the other end. Long ball got punted forward, it bounced, and I think it was Colin Cooper and Trevor Stephen went to head the ball together. And it sort of slowly bounced around Stephen Pears in the goal. And that, that kind of just went whew, the whole silence. But it was such a breathtaking game. So I think probably because of you know what you said yourself there, Sachin, I was I was 17 years old, you know, it was you know, everything in my life at that point was dominated by watching Middlesbrough home and away. So it meant so much to me. Yeah. What What was it like being an away fan in the eighties? I mean, the stories here. Are, I mean, you referenced it. Hooliganism, hooliganism was rife at that time. Did it, did it feel like a dangerous experience hitting the road to Seaborough? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, um, I never 
suffered any violence personally, although saw saw fair bits of it. Mm. And um, you know, coming out of grounds could be daunting. I do remember that season, 87, 88, we, we actually been on an amazing run and we were unbeaten in something like, I'm going to get, say, about 14 games. We went to Elland Road Christmas time and we lost 2-0 in front of a packed Elland Road. And part of me inside was actually quite pleased when their second goal went in to make it 2-0 and we slipped away because that was a really, really scary atmosphere that day. Mm. I remember coming out of the old field at Street at Leicester and they used to have sort of back alleys under the, under the, the houses at the away end and again, there was a you know there was a huge kickoff outside the ground, and you kind of just running and, and running, you know, that feeling at the time running for your life. Yeah. That that kind of thing. I'm not saying it happened all the time. It didn't, but you, you always sensed it. It could happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, it, it was probably with every club at the time, but you know, it, it wasn't. There was, but I, I used to love watching the team away because the sense of pride you get when they run out, mm. uh, you know, it's your team and you, you yeah. know, you want to cheer them and, and that type of thing. So uh, it's just different times. And thankfully, you know, we seem to have in the main moved on significantly from them. And a lot of people deserve a great deal of praise, but it, yeah, they were, I, I, I can't say I, I didn't enjoy it. I loved it, but there was always that element of, you know, a little, little bit of fear in your mind as well, depending on the type of person you were, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hear the stories of people getting off to trains at various cities and just sort of bracing themselves for kind of getting rushed by by, by hooligans from the opposite opposition teams. I'm, thankfully, I'm of an age where I've, I missed all of that. I do feel very grateful that I do I do try and go watch Liverpool away from home as much as I can, and that's one thing I'm delighted I've never had to experience, uh, given my age. Um, something else you referenced um, was the financial trouble Middlesbrough in in, in the eighties and. In the summer of 86, I mean, they essentially came close to dying, didn't they, as a club? They went into voluntary liquidation over debts, I think in the region of about £2 million. The gates to Ayrson Park were padlocked. Staff, including Rioc, were sacked. Um, the club was essentially done and ultimately saved by a takeover, which, which, as you said, was led by then local, well, still a local entrepreneur and borough fan, Steve Gibson, who remains chairman to, the, to, the day, to this day. Um, I mean, you co- you co-wrote a book that detailed this period in Borough's history from doom to boom, most dramatic decade in life in Middlesbrough FC. Do you just want to talk about that summer of 86 and really how close Middlesbrough came to going out of business and how much it impacted the town itself? Yeah, it's, it, looking back on it, I, I don't think when we got relegated today, we got relegated at Shrewsbury. And I, I don't think any Middlesbrough fans, if you, you know, whether it be at the ground or at home, would have anticipated that within a month the club would have been pretty much been closed. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone was. I, we knew there was no money around. We knew it had been incredibly diff, difficult times, but I just don't remember us all thinking, "Oh, that's it." Now we're going to, we, you know, we could be in real difficulty. You know, right now you see stories trailed where yeah. clubs going to be closed. It seems to just happen quite quickly. And I kind of remember hearing it on local radio or something like that, and it's like, "Blimey, what's this all about?" Um, and then it seemed to gather momentum very quickly. And I, I mean, obviously the famous images of the, the gates to the, to the ground being padlocked, you know, and they couldn't train at the training ground. So that, you know, and the, and the players, yeah, they were all, I can't remember the exact terminology, but basically they obviously weren't being paid. I think, I think Bruce helped out at times himself as well. Yeah, I've read, read that as well myself. Wild during that period. I know Steve's mm-hmm. very grateful to Bruce for, for, for the way that he handled like Bruce and Colin Todd. Mm. Um, you know, and it was interesting when Middlesbrough played Norwich in the uh, the playoff final under Ito Karanko. Um, 
Steve invited Bruce to that game. He was in the Wembley suite before the game. You know, Bruce is a someone who is, you know, greatly, greatly respected in Middlesbrough. Um, and that the, the fact that, barring one or two players, that whole group actually stayed, mm. um, you know, and they stayed together. But, but I, I can't... The, the book was a really interesting piece. I mean, obviously, Steve, 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 in the book that I wrote with Dave Allen, who was Middlesbrough's, you know, head of press for many, many years, you know, Steve takes us through the whole chronology of it in that book, as does Graham Fordy, and we were extremely close. And I think there were moments where they didn't feel they were being supported by the authorities in the way that they perhaps could be. I think, and I think the figure was like 2.3, 2.3, something like that, maybe two, I can't remember. But whatever it was, it wasn't sort of money that you think about nowadays for losing. And you take, take Middlesbrough Football Club out the heart of the of this this area and you, you cut in a, a big piece of what of what the area is all about. And it's the same for a lot of we've seen it with, you know, clubs unfortunately like Berry recently. Mm. Middlesbrough in this area is you know, it's not just Middlesbrough as a town, you've got Stockton, you've got Redcar, you've got East Cleveland. It's quite a big part of the population that it's a core part of people's lives. So it was so important that the club was safe. Yeah. I think from my reading of that period and also from my reading of, of what happened with Berry, and we had we had James Bennett, who's a Berry fan, um, come on his podcast to talk about what happened there as well. It feels like sometimes the authorities, you know, the Football League, the Football Association, you can talk about this far better than me. Sometimes the case you just want to make examples of certain clubs. And obviously you can sort of understand that because, you know, it's sort of, a, you know, it's kind of a lesson against bad ownership. But as you say, it's all well and good doing that from sort of offices in London or whatever. But as you say, these clubs are kind of the beating hearts of certain areas and you can make an example to them, but then you are almost near wrecking the lives of many, well, many people, aren't the, you? You would have been ripping the heart out of the town. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you, you get, whether it be 25, 30,000 people going to watch Middlesbrough in the 20 or 30,000 every, every week, but it's not just that. There's the, you know, 150,000 people in the, the region who also support the team and mm. connected to the team and it gives people a, gives people a sense of belonging and hopefully at times a sense of pride. Um, you know, so it's, it's a really important part of the fabric of people's lives. And yes, we were incredibly close. And I don't think that had been through the case of, you know, Middles Middlesbrough hadn't been, you know, they'd sold players. So they sold those three players. Hodgson went to Liverpool in 82. Johnston went to Liverpool in 81. Um, Armstrong to Southampton in 81, Proctor to Nottingham Forest in 81, David Mills had gone in 79, the first half million pound player in, in the U, in, in Britain to West Brom in 79, Sooners had gone to Liverpool for a record fee in January 78. We'd sold a lot of players for a lot of big money in a three-year period mm. and it wasn't then that they were going out and spending big money on other players, they didn't, Middlesbrough didn't spend big money so it was just the fact that the the, the signs that came in couldn't replace the quality. The team then got relegated. And unfortunately, the crowds dipped to levels that were unmanageable. Mm. And that, that was the real reason. So it wasn't a case of someone being frivolous with money and bad management in that regard. They just, they, they'd sold the best players and, and weren't able to, to replace them effectively. And the team suffered and, and it resulted in 86. And that had been coming the, the, the feeling that the team was just going backwards had been coming for two or three years. So, thank goodness we did have the likes of Steve Gibson, you know, who all you know deserves, you know, huge praise for everything he's ever done for the club. But that was a momentous time. But also the other people that were involved too. 
This morning, the club looked as though it was finished, wound up, and the latest rescue package rejected by the league. But this afternoon, the consortium trying to save football in the town announced that their latest deal had been accepted and that the borough will play their opening match with Port Vale next week. As Keith Akers reports, it was a last-minute affair. OK, I think uh, the statement we'd like to make is that following further communications with the Football League, the consortium is satisfied that the Football League's conditions can be met in full and are proceeding to conclude arrangements. The announcement was greeted with stunned silence from the battle-weary media who'd followed every twist and turn in Borough's fortunes over the last three months. But even in their hour of triumph, the consortium, who've been so reluctant to talk in the past, found it difficult to speak freely and openly. They had to admit they'd done it by the skin of their teeth. If you'd asked me last night, I would have said the chances of Middlesbrough surviving were almost nil. And that was the real situation. The consortium have given in to all the Football League's demands for takeover deals, including the toughest, which is to pay all creditors in full. The borough owed £2 million, and the League also insisted on the consortium putting up an extra £350,000 to work with. It's understood the League had told the consortium privately that they had until noon today to come up with an acceptable package or they'd sanction transfer deals for the players. At least one was to have had talks with a new club tomorrow. But the news has come as a relief to manager Bruce Rioch, who was praised by the consortium for keeping the squad together. It's been a traumatic week for everyone at the club. Obviously we've had to cope with professional footballers and we've had to do it a professional way. Obviously the last week has been an absolute nightmare. Uh, for, not just for myself but for the players. We've, we didn't know where, where we were coming or going. We'll, cut, we'll absolutely come on to Steve Gibson uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a little while. He's, uh, he, we've mentioned, you know, he's sort of referenced about four or five times and he's a huge figure in Borough's history. So we will absolutely talk about him shortly. Um, just before we get off this sort of period, um, you, you know, you said earlier you, felt very, you feel very emotional talking about that sort of 86, 89 period. Do you think that is in part because of how close the club came to, to sort of falling out of existence in that summer of 86? You just sort of appreciate that team more because they almost didn't exist. Yeah, I think there's so many factors coming together, Sasha. It, it was... But I was, what, 16, 17, 18, 19 during that period. I was a little bit younger than most of the players, but a couple of lads that I played with ended up playing in that team towards the end of that, that era. So, you know, I played with and against Nicky Mohan, who I remember, you know, he he played in he played in the 88-89 season in the game the week before. He played against Arsenal the week before they played the famous game at Anfield with Liverpool. And I'm thinking, blimey, I was playing with and against Nicky three years ago. <laughs> Um, another one I played with Andrew Fletcher, who top scored for the reserves for three years. He was in that squad in the, the 88-89 season. He scored in the FA Youth Cup final at White Hart Lane. The players themselves, people like Gary Hamilton, um, they were they were so approachable, they were so real. The first pubs I ever went into, I'd, I'd see people like Gary in there. You know, there's guys now that are still Facebook friends from that period. Um, wow, that must be that's amazing. We, yeah. we, we, when the team got promoted in 87, 88 after beating Chelsea over two legs, and people forget that you had to, we, we had to play Chelsea, who'd been, they were technically third bottom in the first division. So we played them at home. We beat Bradford 2 0 at home to win the second leg of the semi final to reach the reach the um, the playoff final after blowing it on the last day of the season when we, we lost 2 1 at home to Leicester, where the, I think the whole occasion was too much for them and they choked it. Um, we went to Chelsea. We beat Chelsea 2-0 very comfortably at Essen Park. 
But we went to Stamford Bridge and the, 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 the violence that day was quite unbelievable. People have no idea how bad the violence was that day. And Middlesbrough that came out of it with a 1-0 victory and that was how they won promotion. Um, when they came back a couple of days later, there was a civic reception and, and I, I, I've never really seen too much video of this till very recently. And I mean, the, the crowd scenes that day in the, the, the centre of the town, I, I don't know how many people were there, but it was that that was an unbelievable moment again. And you kind of think that's where the, 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 the real closeness and I was having a conversation with Bernie Slaven on uh, a, a messenger thing the other day and Bert, Bernie finished, I think, third top scorer in the first division the following year behind Alan Smith and John Aldridge who finished first and second. How we got relegated that season. We only finished in the bottom, we went in the bottom three for the first time with 20 minutes to go of the season. Blimey, that's agonising. Right? That's absolutely agonising, isn't it? And that was a team, again, that hadn't spent buckets of money. Yeah. Um, played really good football. But I remember we played Millwall at Ayrson Park in around about the end of October, beginning of November. And we beat them 4-2. Fabulous game. Cascarino and Sheridan up front for Millwall. Bernie was in his absolute pomp for Middlesbrough. And Bernie was a really good striker. Um, I think we were up to about top six in the first division at that point. We signed Peter Davenport that day. And that was going to be the next big step. And that was a big sign that he cost the best part of nine, 750,000 record sign for us. And for whatever reason, it just didn't work for Peter. And, and that Millwall game was... I think that was the, the tipping point where that was that was the the, the Rioc team's energy going forward. We that was the moment we stopped going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I said it's still an incredibly exciting time. And let's talk about another really exciting time: um, the nineteen nineties, specifically the Brian Robson years. Uh, so he was manager of Borough between ninety four and two thousand and one. Um, incredibly exciting and eventful time in the club's history. Three cup finals, relegation from an immediate promotion back to the Premier League. And um, the thing I remember Borough most for during that period, three iconic foreign signings, uh, Janino, Fabrizio Ravinelli and Emerson. Um, must have been an amazing time for you as a supporter, but especially for you, given you're also working for the club at the time. Uh, as a publication and press uh, publications and press officer between May '95 and November 1997, I mean you were just well and truly part of that ride, weren't you? Uh, yeah, and it's it was an incredible time. Uh, I've got so much admiration for Brian Robson as a person. He's one of the most humble people you'd ever meet in your life for what he's achieved um, yeah. and what he did for Middlesbrough, putting us on the map. The, 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 the Robson combination with C. Gibson was very special because they were both young men. I think they were both both under forty at that point, mm. you know. And Steve just had this vision, and Steve, you know, was like was like a juggernaut driving that forward. He was so he knew he was building a new stadium. He 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 wanted a he wanted a marquee manager. He gets Brian Robson. He, he would have uh, long retired from United because he was player manager at Borough as well, wasn't well, he? He was still a player, wasn't he? Really, he was, he was playing for United, and yeah. he knew, so the deal was come. I think they played Chelsea in the FA Cup final. I don't think Brian was in the team that day. Mm. But yeah, then, but we already—I think it was already known that Brian was then coming in as the player manager. And there's that kind of iconic photo, yeah, that's going to mention the jacket and the shorts and boots, which you know you can all <laughs> a bit cheesy, whatever. But you know what? It's an image that people remember. Yeah. So, um, 
It is right. one of the most famous photographs of that dude, isn't it? <laughs> Brian Robson in his shirt and tie and a pair of shorts and kick ups on the was brilliant. <laughs> I'm going to move it just a little bit further forward, but we've got yeah, Robert '97 season. But we, the, the 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 team had entertained so much, and I think I think a lot of people around the country loved that team for yeah. the way they played. And I, I I defy anyone who's not seen it. Watch on YouTube, Manchester United v Middlesbrough around about April 1997 at Old Trafford. 3-3 three, three draw. Watch watch the goals that Middlesbrough scored. There's one team goal that they scored that day that was, I think Janino shaped it in the end, but Ravenelli, Emerson, Hignett, who was a very underrated player, by yeah, the way. Yeah, a very good player, I remember well. Um, yeah. the, 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 they moved the ball all the way through the length of the pitch, moved it around sideways, and then opened United up and scored the, the most perfect team goal. Um, so that's why people enjoyed watching them. Yeah, and it was just an unbelievable journey. Like, the club felt all new. It was so exciting. We we got promoted year one. The, the, so the final game ever at Essen Park was to beat Luton Town to get promoted. Parade of former players on the pitch: Wilf Mannion, George Hardwick, all the way through the seventies team. Brilliant. We win promotion, and then as we're going into the new season. They smashed the transfer record. They buy, buy Nick Barnby for five point two million. That was in my first week at the club. <laughs> so I worked part time the year before, but this was my first full time. Yeah. Like my goodness me, this is. Then we, you know, we brought in lots of other players as well. You know, Nigel Pearson, the captain, was a really dominating person. Hugely important signing for Middlesbrough Football Club during that period. And then obviously Janino came in about the September October of eighty five. He was the Brazilian Player of the Year. So Paolo, he'd scored a wonder goal at Wembley against England. To get him was a major coup. Um, the team, I think at Christmas, I think we were fourth at Christmas in our first year back. And then we hit a really bad run. We got spanked 5-0 by Everton on Boxing Day at Goodison. And we didn't win till March. So we finished mid-table. But even so, it was still a very credible return. That summer was where... You know, this is where you go. I really admire Steve as a chairman and Brian's ability to attract players. We signed Ravinelli, who's just scored in the Champions League final. Yeah. You know, we then signed Emerson, who at the time was one of the most sought-after players in Europe from Porto. And I have to say, Emerson, pound for pound, on his day, was as good a player as I've ever seen playing in a Middlesbrough shirt. The, the, first few, the first few months he was at the club, he was everything. He got injured, he lost his way, and he never quite became what he should have become. But he could have been, and at times would, was unbelievable power but also really clever football. Played Liverpool away. We got beat 5-1 at Anfield. Really badly beaten 5-1. And it was, I think, it was the start of Christmas sort of time. And we were due to play Blackburn the following week. And that's when the team, we were um, without so many players with injury and illness. That mm. the combat, I wasn't privy to the exact detail of the conversation, so it's not for me to pass lots of opinions on that. But you know, the row is between the club and the Premier League as to who said what and what permission was or wasn't given. Right, that was the trigger for then being deducted three points. Those three points, in the end, cost mm. the club its place at the end of the season. But the remainder of that season, we then go on the cup runs where we, you know, we beat Liverpool, we beat Newcastle in the League Cup, we reached the League Cup final. Um, two weeks before the League Cup final, we blew Leicester away through one at Filbert Street with Janino playing absolutely sensational. It's the worst thing that could have happened because then Martin O'Neill in the cup final. He just put uh, a man on Janino the whole game and Janino couldn't breathe that game. We still scored the opening goal in extra time. 
to go one 0 up, and then Emil Hesky bundled one in in, in in the last minute of an injury time of extra time. So the ribbons had been on the cup that day, when they got taken off. Yeah. Um, we then lost the replay at Hillsborough. Steve Clary scored. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we were fighting for our lives, and we picked up form again. The Man United game being one example, a three-all draw there where we played ever so well. But we we picked up form, and it was still within our hands to stay up. And then we reached the FA Cup final, which we'd never done before. We beat City away in the fifth round. We went to Derby. Great performance against Derby 2-0 at the baseball ground. Then the classic game with Chesterfield where, you know, we, we got the look that day. So just everything that season. Then we play the cup final against Chelsea and Mark Schwarzer by now is in. I think he was cup tag Mark, being a great signing. Young Ben Roberts plays. Di Matteo has the free hit scores the goal after 40 seconds. And what, what's often forgotten from that final is we had a really interesting goal disallowed right on half time that no one ever remembers by a guy called Gianluca Festa, which it'd be interesting to see how the, uh, the famous lines on the pitch looked like because that wasn't as, it wasn't a clear offside. Yeah. So, but we, you know, we were flat in that final in my opinion. And, so we, we, we got relegated because we, I think we drew our last three games, including the heartbreak game at Leeds. We drew nil-nil and we just couldn't put them away. If we scored one goal, we stay up. I had a load of questions about that period. You basically summarised it all brilliantly in, in one sort of in one take, which is great. But I just want to pick on certain little moments. I've yeah. got to go back to Janino, who just one of my all-time favourite players. I mean, I adore the 90s. I sort of tweet about it endlessly. I just think it was the best time for football ever. And... One of the reasons is because of the influx of just amazing foreign talent into into English football. And Janino is very much part of that. So you said it there. He arrived um, in England from Sao Paulo, obviously arrived at Middlesbrough in October 1995 for £4.75 million. Pounds. Um, he'd been brilliant for Brazil at the Umbro Cup, which was the summer tournament that taking place that summer in England, which is kind of a, like a sort of a preparation tournament, I guess, for Euro 96 the following summer involving Brazil, England, Japan and Sweden. He, he was amazing for Brazil. Um, he was linked with the likes of Arsenal and Inter Milan, I remember. And it was just a huge shock when he joined uh, Middlesbrough, who, as you say, just been promoted back to the top flight. Um, with all due respect to Middlesbrough, Adrian, how on earth... Did he? Did a club persuade him to sign? And were you aware, as I said, working for the club at the time, were you aware for quite a while he was on his way? Was what? Was it one of those things you had to keep quiet from family? And no, friends? it was. I mean, look, it was. We were still quite. I think it's. It's. We we were one of the first sort of full PR setups of a football club, um, but we were we were also learning on the job. A lot of the people had come in from ICI, Lady called Fiona Bell, Dave Allen. They'd come in from ICI, and I'd worked with them both when I was a young youngster when I first left school. Um, on the company newspaper. So that's where my relationship was that kind of got me into Middlesbrough. Um, but, you know, I, even working for you know, one of the world's biggest chemical companies didn't prepare anybody for someone for, for suddenly dealing with the level of exposure that Middlesbrough was suddenly getting. Yeah, during that two-year two period where, yeah. I think, under Man United, we were probably um, right up there. But we were, I know we were, because we've got measurements done. That I think under Man United, we were the next most covered team for about 96, 97 season. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brian Robson, I, I, so I didn't know anything about it. Brian Robson and Keith Lamb, who was the chief executive for a long period of time, they flew to Sao Paulo. Well, I've seen the pictures many times of Brian and Keith meeting Janino. Brian was clearly a very persuasive guy. Keith was a very, very good negotiator. And 
and they, well, they brought him back. You know, yeah. that, but, but, you know, and I think we have to. That's why I say Brian. He's such a modest individual, but you know, he he unfortunately never won a major trophy with Middlesbrough. But blind, 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 he was close, and he got his team. He got that team when it played played some champagne football. He could attract players so well. And I think combine that with when anyone who meets Steve Gibson um, will, when, when Steve wants you, he is an incredibly persuasive individual, incredibly persuasive. And I can just imagine the conversations, how they went then. So when they arrived though, I mean, you know, we, we had thousands of people in the stadium that day to welcome yeah. him middle of the week, mid, you know, in the mid morning. You know, it was it was on a grey, cloudy day. It wasn't it wasn't when you see the signs normally come in the summer and it's all perfect. This was mid season before windows were what they were, were mm. what they are now. Um, it then it, you know, I'm quite good friends with Yanaga Fiortov. And the first game was Leeds United and it was full, absolutely packed. And I think Dave I don't know whether David just got married, Dave Allen or he definitely wasn't there that day for whatever he's on holiday or something. Which is most unusual, and it was the first time I ever had the press box to run myself. <laughs> and I, it was just absolutely packed the press box about Leeds game. And then he started the game. If you remember, Janino Stalli was like a buzzing hornet yeah, where he yeah. was with the ball, and he played he played a, um, a one-two in with Jan, and obviously Jan scored. Then they've got this great image where they, um, you know, Janino leaps into into Jan. It's like a a horse with a jockey. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and bizarrely, many years later, after a couple of drinks in Munich, when Jan and I had been to a game, uh, that scene was recreated <laughs> outside the bar. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, he was just... The, the other thing about Janino was as well, he was an incredibly humble person. And he didn't go in that dressing room. It would have been, that team was playing really well. Mm. It, was, it was in the top six in the Premier League at that point. And it would have been really easy for uh, the wrong type of character to go in and destabilise something. Janino was not that. Janino was someone. That's why he's loved so much. He was a he was a really, really modest, humble, hardworking person, a team player. Keeping uh, the lid on this game now. After struggling in the first half to uh, find their rhythm. Here goes Phil Stamp. It's his run that started the... Uh... Oh, and the keeper's lost it! Forward! And Janino! Great back here, Juninho shot. Yes! Juninho has scored, and Middlesbrough, against the odds and against the run of play, have taken the lead here at Goodison with nine minutes to go. As far as Middlesbrough are concerned, Juninho. Emerson to Juninho. Can he get the cross in? Bamboozles are Nolan. Oh, there it is! Put that one in the album! Great goal by Janino. He sends them this way on that. 
he's found Fester on a forward run. Ravinelli. Fleming. Has it all taken too long? Janinho! They couldn't keep the little genius in the bottle for 90 minutes. That's, that's the thing I was going to ask you about. I mean, Janinho just seemed like the most committed superstar a club could have. Obviously defined by that image of him sat on the turf at Ellen Road on the last day of the 96-97 season when Middlesbrough relegated. He looks utterly dejected. Um, he just tried, you know, uh, to use a crude term, tried his bollocks off that season. It was so obvious watching from outside, as well as being incredibly skillful. He was obviously incredibly committed. He came back to Borough in August 2002 and spent another two years at the club. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that he's a, he's a club legend, a club icon, isn't he? And he just seems, as you say, like the nicest man on the planet as well. I, mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised at some point in the future there'll be a statue built outside of the ground, I guess, at some point in time, because he... He ended up coming back to the club three times he came back to the club. Oh, of course, there was, yes, there was a third time. Oh, yeah. So he, 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 unfortunately, from his career point of view, look, he left Middlesbrough when they got relegated in 97 because he went, he, he obviously had the World Cup the following year. Mm-hmm. And he, he was desperate to play in that World Cup. And, you know, no one can really blame him for that. Signed for Atletico Madrid and he got, he, he had a horrendous injury where someone absolutely wiped him out. And that definitely took half a yard of pace off him. So, you you know, wh- whether he was ever quite the same level of... He was still a brilliant player, mm. but a level of magic maybe was yeah. just a, reduced a little bit. But he felt the connection with the people of Teesside. Mm. You know, the, 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 the warmth, the love, the affection. Um, you know, and the great thing about him was his, his family lived here. They, they, they didn't live remotely out the way of people. They lived in a, in a you know, nice property, you know, you know, major housing development, but they were they were accessible. But to be honest with you, a lot of the players during that time did. I mean, Rav lived a bit further out in a North Yorkshire village called Hutton Rugby, which is a beautiful sport. Um, Emerson lived local to Janino. You know, it's like, you, you know, but we had this, we used to suffer a lot of stick about oh, the, the weather and this sort of stuff. And, you know, he's come from Brazil. Well, he come from Sao Paulo, and anyone who knows Sao Paulo knows that the weather in Sao Paulo can isn't always glorious sunshine. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not Rio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, very good point. Yeah. <laughs> just just to talk about Ravinelli as well. I mean, so he he stayed for two seasons as well. He joined Marseille in September '97. As you say, he arrived. Um, sorry, one season I should say, because yeah. uh, he came in '96. Sorry, and he came as you say, having scored for Juventus in the Champions League final. An absolutely huge signing for Borough. And I guess there's a view because he only stayed one season, and that he was he was a bit of um, I won't say a failure for Borough, but that he that he didn't give as as much as he could have done. But in that season, in that ninety six ninety seven season, I mean, he scored thirty one goals in forty eight games. I mean, that is an incredible that is an incredible return. And so, in that sense, he fully delivered for Middlesbrough, didn't he? When we signed Ravinelli, as good as Giannino was and as brilliant as Giannino was, signing Ravinelli was another step up. Yeah, absolutely. It, it felt it, it or it felt that way, right? Mm-hmm. Because this guy was, I think, because of the, he was the white feather, the pen, the pen of Bianca. He was he'd done the Champions League piece. He was he was like a kind of global super or a European superstar, mm-hmm. and he had that aura. I don't consider him a failure. I consider it. I consider him to have been an um, the, the best finisher I've ever seen play for Middlesbrough would would have to be Ravinelli. And I say that we've had a few good ones, but um, you realise the level he's played at. Yeah, huge signing. And, and I said Emerson was also excellent for, for Borough as well. I loved, I loved Emerson as a guy. 
Emerson used to turn up in pubs on a Sunday night. That were, Sunday night used to be a very big night out in Middlesbrough. And I can remember there was a famous pub in Middlesbrough called the Dickens Inn, and I do remember him walking in, and this whole this whole pub, a really busy pub, just started chanting his name on a Sunday because wow. he he was a he had he was so charismatic. Yeah, no, he was. Yeah, fact, uh, Brazilian midfielder, of course, came from Porto. Spent two years at the club um, before going to Tenerife. But that's fantastic. So he was a bit of a bit of a boozer, was he? he liked a pint, did he, Emerson? Uh, I cannot say he was a boozer, <laughs> but he liked. He, he was a social person, and he just connected. He just had that. You know, you, you know, Ravinelli was coming from the Italian side of things, where you know he would like the guys who were playing for Milan or Juventus at the time. They were they were ahead of the game, weren't they? Yeah. Weren't they? their diets and their yeah, fitness nutrition wise yeah yeah absolutely well look let's talk about steve gibson because we've, we've mentioned him 700 times without properly discussing him so yeah just a huge figure in middlesbrough's history from from what i can tell and from what i've read about him it's quite obvious i guess obviously the guy who uh, played a huge role in saving the club in 86 led that sort of boom period in the 90s um still chairman now saw through uh the riverside uh uh, the Riverside Stadium being created in, in 95, which at the time, and it still feels like now, very sort of modern ground, holds what I think about 34, 35,000 people. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, when Middlesbrough went down, for instance, in 97, he, he, he stumped up the money for Paul Merson to come to Borough in that summer, and he was a key part of the team that got immediately promoted back in 98. Merson was absolutely outstanding for Middlesbrough. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, well. If you speak to a lot of people, you know, they will, they will, you know, if, if you're weighing everything up, they will say pound for pound, he is as good as any of the other signings that we had because mm-hmm. it wasn't a one-man team, but without Paul Merson, we don't get up that following season. No, I remember that, yeah. I, remember, I mean, you knocked Liverpool out the League Cup that year, didn't you? I remember Merson being absolutely outstanding and he'd ride from Arsenal for four and a half million pounds and, again, was a, a big name, going dropping down a division as well to join Borough and, yeah, so Steve Gibson's behind all of that. He's behind saving the club. He's behind the sort of 90s revolution. He's behind getting you a new, new, very modern, very, very impressive stadium. He's still there now as chairman. Um, I'm trying to think, of, I can't think of many other equivalents at many other, certainly many other English clubs, figures like Steve Gibson, just an incredible figure. And as you said, it was very young when he, when he saved the club in 86. Do you just want to talk about him as a man and his impact yeah. on Borough? Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've got to know Steve better over, you know, as, as time goes by, but... Mm. What you say there, I don't. I don't think there is a person in English football who's an equivalent of Steve. Mm. Being, you know, just yeah. from the longevity piece of it, the points you make there are all accurate. I would add to that that while he built the stadium, and then sort of in '97 and '98 time, he opened at the time what was the state of the art training ground in England as well at Rockcliffe, which is still for me as a setting. I'm not saying it's the as, 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 as modern as Tottenham or Manchester City, et cetera, et cetera, as they are now. But as a setting, it's still a spectacular training ground. And he built a hotel on that site as well, um, which obviously the team have benefited from at times. So anyone who is fortunate enough to spend time with Steve privately, and I, I've been very fortunate in that regard, he, his, his passion, his desire, his commitment to wanting the team to do well also his commitment to the area as a whole is unwavering he 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 cares so deeply for the area for the people of the area the the club's football foundation the charity foundation is an incredible foundation and that obviously 
has Steve support. When I used to take, when I worked at the club more recently, and you know, I would take people into the club to give them tours of the training ground, I'd always stop them. There's various quotations on the walls of the corridors, and there's two from Steve, and there was two that used to really stand out, and it was why we were there and what it was, you know, what your role was, remembering where you are and who you're representing. And you can never lose sight of that with Steve. The other great thing about him as well, he really, you know, you look at his record, because he's been there a long time now, they've obviously had a number of managers, but he really does try to support his managers. You know, he, he's not someone... He's actually probably the polar opposite to the Watford model, and that's not me criticising Watford, but he is someone who really does believe in, you know, giving the manager as much time as he possibly can and trying to support the manager. Look, it's not as easy as people realise, and you know, the amount of money that Steve has funded that club with, um, I don't know the exact number. We probably none of us probably really do. It's a huge number, and it's a huge commitment on his part. And everything about him, when you work for him, is about he wants he wants to try and support every support the football side of the club as much as as much as it possibly can be supported. And he's a great person to work for. I might add, you know, I I, I found the support I received from Steve Gibson when I was there more recently. He was really he's not oppressive as an owner. He's supportive as an owner. He's not hands-on in a way that he gets in your way and makes your life difficult, but he's there enough to know what's going on, that he's not too distant. And that makes him, for me, look, obviously he wouldn't want to be where Middlesbrough are at this particular moment in the the Championship, and nobody wants Middlesbrough back in the Premier League more than Steve does. But it's it's not for anything other than Steve's desire. And he's a man who, he makes things happen, He's made things happen in his life. His record proves that, you know, for all of Brian Robson's magnetism in being able to attract players during that wonderful period, or when Steve McLaren took over and similar things happened, it doesn't happen without Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I said, I, I can't, I struggle to think of an equivalent figure in English football. I just think, I, I don't know him and obviously no connection to Borough, but I've always admired him from from afar. I just think he's done phenomenal. And that thing about managers is very true. It just seems to be someone who really backs his manager as well. It doesn't feel like there's very, very rarely a knee-jerk kind of sacking at, at Borough as well. Um, speaking of managers, just do want to touch on one other that you just mentioned there as well. Steve McLaren, obviously Borough's manager between 2001 and 2006. And in that period, another sort of golden period, really, for Middlesbrough. And there's two very significant achievements during that time. I think you know what I'm going to say. 2004 League Cup win against Bolton, the Carling Cup, as it was known then, and the 2006 UEFA Cup final um, against Sevilla. And really, in that sense, it wasn't the final it was too much because Borough, Borough lost that 4-0. But the run to it, which we'll come on to shortly. But I just want to talk about, yeah, first, the, the Carling Cup final win against Bolton, 2-1 um, in Cardiff in 2004. And it was Middlesbrough's first and still only uh, piece of domestic or piece of silverware, I should say. Um, that just must have been a very special day for the club and remain a very special achievement for Middlesbrough. We, we, I presume you were there. Yeah, it was. Look, it's the greatest day in the club's history. And I mean, I, I sat with my wife and I, I had to go for a walk at half time around the stadium because I was really. I'd, I'd got myself into a situation that day where I sort of said, well, we were playing Bolton and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Bolton, but previously we played Chelsea in finals and things like that. And it was like, yeah. this is, if we're ever going to bloody do it, this is the time we're going to do it. 
and it, it could have gone either way because Bolton was still a good side as well. Yeah, they were on the Sam Allardyce. Yeah, very good but, team. Yeah, it was like this has got to be the day we're going to do it. You know, we have Mendieta, Zenden, Janino, Southgate, Eggio, Schwarzer. You know, that, that Danny Mills at right back. That that is a pretty powerful side. Yeah, and then the fact that we we started, we were two 0 up within five minutes. At two 0 um. I'm, I'm walking around and I'm thinking, and I was, I was genuinely having you know, palpitations walking around the stadium because like probably everyone else, I wanted it so much. I, I wanted this from the first minute I kicked the ball and I kicked the ball myself every day for a, as a kid. That's all I ever wanted to do. Um, so yeah, that was, I, I, what I loved about that as well, a totally different team to the, um, the, the Brian Robson team. Steve, Steve built it in a different way and obviously Gareth Southgate was his first signing. Ugo was already there. Ryan signed Ugo. Um, Southgate was such an important signing in Middlesbrough Football Club's history because Southgate, what we talk about his leadership qualities now is with the England manager. He brought that to Middlesbrough. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, you know, Gareth is someone just that so much admiration for him. But then we we added the bits of flair. The first year was difficult for Steve, and I remember he lost a, a League Cup game. I think it might be in his second season at Ipswich Town where he fielded a reserve team. And I remember being at a dinner with him about a week later and he was frustrated because he was getting stick off the Middlesbrough fans. And, and this is a true story. And I do remember saying, look, Steve, you, you've got a good side and we've never won anything. People, people, we're, we're highly unlikely to win the Premier League. We might have a chance with the FA Cup. We got the semi-final in his first season and narrowly lost to Arsenal 1-0. But the League Cup, on paper gives you the best chance. So, it, you know, what, I remember saying to him, genuinely saying, why don't you try and make your mark by winning, winning a trophy? He did better than that because he, he built a team that was comfortable mid-table team. But at times, actually, there was a few seasons where we tailed off the last sort of four or five games where if we hadn't done, we'd have, we were comfortable sort of top six. Now you could say, remember that time, yeah. They brought in in 2000, he won the League Cup in 04. Janino left. And he changed the team a bit and he brought in Viduka and Hasselbank. We've had George, ba- George Boateng playing anchor. Um, you know, and Viduka and Hasselbank were a great pair. Great, great pair. We had a good goalkeeper, good centre-backs. Stuart Down had come into the team then and was adding some real quality to it at that point as a really young, fresh player. We still had Mendieta around. We still had Zenden around. You know, that, that was a really good side. Mendieta has switched it to Zenden. Right across the job, and it is a fantastic start for Middlesbrough. We're inside two minutes, Joseph Desire job gets the fastest ever goal in this final since it moved to a one-off match. And Steve McLaren didn't even see it. He was off changing out of his suit into his tracksuit, and he hasn't witnessed what potentially is an historic moment for his team. And on by Mendieta, here's Janino. Mendieta steers it through for job, he's got one goal already, it's a penalty! Emerson Tom has conceded a penalty! And Middlesbrough here have a chance to go two up already. Polo's ended, has scored three goals in his last five matches. What an opportunity this is for Middlesbrough. Zenden, oh, he's unlucky, he 
Koskelainen, he got a foot to it, but he couldn't keep it out. And this is an unbelievable start for Middlesbrough. Two up in seven minutes. Here's Jardinho. Taken away from him all too easily by Kevin Nolan. Now Davis. Trying to get away from Southgate. Nothing on in the middle for him. Had to go for it. Oh, and he's gone through. A disaster for Mark Schwarzer. Away by Gareth Southgate. They are almost there now, Middlesbrough. Can Janino just keep it? He might do even more than that. Can he get away from Bruno and Gotti? He shows too much of it to him in the end. Brilliant play. Brilliant play from Janino. And Middlesbrough's trophy cabinet can be declared open. Steve McLaren has made history. His squad have made history. The first major silverware in their 128-year history. They've raised the roof at the Millennium Stadium. They've set the standards by which others must now follow. They've beaten Bolton in the Carling Cup final. And the party starts here. Steve Gibson's money has been well spent. It's taken a decade and more to do it, but they have done it. Silverware is on its way to Middlesbrough, and there will be tears of joy in Teesside. He then took us on the... We, we, we got in the UEFA Cup. I think we got the round of 16, got beat by Sporting Lisbon, but knocked out teams like Lazio along the way, gave them a bit of confidence. The following year, we just went on this run, and it was amazing. And you know, I, I saw the team knock Roma out in Rome. I saw them knock Stuttgart out in Stuttgart. They went and won the Bundesliga that season or the year after. Then we played the we played Basel. We got well beaten two 0 in Basel. Then we came from then we conceded early on from memory, and we ended up you know last minute beating them. Well, you have to check this. Can't remember the score. I think well, the score I, I can was. tell you because it is absolutely extraordinary. I remember at the time, but I don't remember how mad it was until I did my research for this. So. so I, there's these two, there's these two um, games, aren't there? The quarterfinal and the semifinal en route to the UEFA Cup final against Sevilla, which, as I said, Borough lost, lost 4-0. But really, it was all about the run and specifically these two games. So just to go through and how spookily similar they were as well. So Middlesbrough played Basel in the quarterfinal UEFA Cup in, in 05-06. They lost 2-0 away in the first leg in Basel. They then went 1-0 down in the second leg. They got the aggregate score back to 3-3 and then uh, they got the fourth goal, the crucial fourth goal that, that put them through uh, via a last, it was a last minute goal from Massimo Macaroni, the Italian striker. They then play Stour Bucharest in the semi-finals. Yet again, they're away from home in the first leg. Yet again, they lose this time 1-0, bring Bucharest back to the riverside. They then go 2-0 down in the second leg. So again, they're 3-0 down on aggregate. Again, get back to 3-all on aggregate. And again, Macaroni scores a crucial fourth goal with a late winner, an 89th-minute diving header. So both ties have ended 4-3 on aggregate. Both have been huge comebacks at the Riverside and both have been via late uh, Massimo Macaroni winners. I mean, just absolutely incredible kind of synergy and symmetry between those games. And, and it was breathtaking breakneck speed football. And Sven was at the, I think it was at both games, after the quarterfinal, he walked in the boardroom and he said to Steve and the other Middlesbrough guy, he said, you will never see that ever again. <laughs> exactly right. Like, as well. We watched the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, exactly. Yeah. But we also, the other thing with that, we played, we played the, we, we played West Ham in the middle of the, the Bucharest games. We played West Ham at Villa Park in the FA Cup semi-final. Yes, that's right. Of course. And, you know, we, yeah. we played about, just shy of 70 games that season. And we were so, f- we, we were flat at West Ham. We, we got beat 1-0 in a pretty poor game. 
You know, we went in and I think we had injured. I think Gareth went off injured in the first early part of that. But you know what? The, the final, for even though you'd say, for me, I've just said the greatest day in the club's history was winning the League Cup. I would say personally, the proudest day for me as a Millerfan was the final. And yeah, we got beat 4-0. But again, if you you got to be a fan, I guess, to understand the detail. But it was 1-0 with about 20 minutes to go. And we were just, then we went and did what we'd done in the previous games and through the kitchen sink at a very good Seville side. Mark Viduca missed one chance and he could have potentially had a penalty as well at 1-0. And we were all sitting there saying, you know what, if we get one in, we'll, because the confidence, the swing would have been so massive with confidence, but they were a damn good side. You look at the side there on paper and they were just great. So, but yeah, it was disappointing to lose the final 4-0, but you know what? For a club the size of Middlesbrough to, to reach the UEFA Cup final with the teams they beat, it was a very, very special time. Yeah, that's, uh, we should say that was held in Eindhoven, wasn't it? The, the 2006 um, UEFA Cup final, Borough's first ever and still only European final. And that Sevilla team, I mean, Sevilla then, I think it was probably the start of that reign where they just seemed to win it every single year. Yeah. Uh, that's a very good team. Danny Alves was, was in that team. Jesus Navas, who eventually joined uh, Man City. Adriano, a uh, very good striker. Javier Saviola is a very good Argentinian striker. So. Yeah, Freddie Canute came off the bench at half time as well. So yeah, I mean, that makes that makes total sense. I mean, I presume again you you'd have been out in, in Eindhoven for that game yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It was just a, yeah, disappointing to lose the game, but yeah. still a very very special period, quite frankly. And yeah, I think it gave it gave the team that gave the team the town a whole real sense of pride. And I was you know I was working, I, I was director of comms at the FA at the time, but I still managed to make sure I got to the games because there was no way I was going to miss those yeah. games. Adrian, you've been absolutely fantastic. So let's let's just do the last couple of things I always do on this podcast. The first thing is to go through your all-time Middlesbrough 11. So to tell people who don't who haven't listened to this podcast before, I always ask my guests to pick an all-time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen during their time supporting their club. And Adrian's been very kind to pick his all-time uh, Middlesbrough 11. So it's in a 3-4-2-1 uh, formation, which I, which I really like. That's great. I to count the players to make sure I, I definitely got 11 and I haven't got 12. <laughs> yeah, I think now you've absolutely got 11. Yes, yeah, so in a lovely 3-4-2-1 formation. Hard to say, but very nice to look at. Uh, so let's go through the team. Uh, Mark Schwarzer in goal. The back three are Ugo Egiog, the late and great Ugo Egiog, we should say. Gareth Southgate and Gary Pallister. The midfield four are Guys Gamendietta, Craig Johnson, Graham Souness, and David Armstrong. And then the two behind the striker are Janino and Paul Merson. And the striker is, of course, Fabrizio Ravinelli. Um, one observation from me, the four me- there are four members of the 0506 squad in there, the, the, the squad that got to the UEFA Cup final, which sort of shows you how good that, that squad was. And including that squad is Mendieta, who, who you did briefly mention before, another big foreign signing, joined on loan from Lazio before completing a, a permanent move in, in 2004 uh, to Borough. And there's real sort of parallels with Juninho, isn't there? Because, again, he was a bit of an unexpected glamorous signing for Borough and he's another man who's really sort of formed a connection with the club he still lives around the area is it in Yarn that he lives I believe Yarm I should say he, he doesn't any he doesn't anymore he moved back down south um a few years ago but he yes absolutely right he stayed living in the area for you know many years after he finished playing for the club so yeah he undoubtedly formed a great connection and I was involved with the Legends tournament um Star Sixes a few years ago at the O2 it was brilliant Mendy was playing Rav was playing oh wow he was playing and 
you know, it was great talking to all. Merce was playing as well. Bloody hell, that's like the greatest legends team of all time. The skill on show that side. Individual countries. Um, all right, fair enough. Okay. But um, yeah, it was it was really nice catching up with them. Mendy's a really really nice guy, and he's obviously does quite a bit of work with UEFA and stuff like that on the legends piece. So yeah, a, a very talented player and kind of understated player at times. A very clever technical player. Yeah, he was great, wasn't he? he was at Valencia. I think is where he made his name. Wasn't he? he went to Barcelona, and then I said. Lazio before before joining Borough. Um, another player I just want to touch on is Craig Johnson, which I think he had a... So he's in your midfield alongside Sooness, of course, two guys who, event, who are probably better known for their time, well, almost certainly known, better known for their time at, at Liverpool. But Johnson's fascinating time at Borough um, from doing my research on him as well. So he was in middles between 77 and, 1977 and 1981. Um, he was part of John Neal's team, which, again, I know from your excellent notes, was a, was a, was a really a really good uh, Borough team, got a lot of plaudits for its playing style. Um, but Johnson had a really tough time, didn't he, at start? So so he, he's Australian, as many people know. He came over for a trial. He was sent packing by Jack Charlton, who didn't basically didn't rate him, didn't think he was very good. Um, he sort of came back, was determined to make it Middlesbrough, spent hours working on his fitness and technique in sort of the streets, basically, behind Ayrson Park, and then was eventually given a contract by Neil just two months after his 17th birthday. I mean, that's an incredible story, isn't it? Incredible personal story, an incredible personal achievement for him. I think Craig was a great... I remember watching Craig all the way through sort of my primary school days and early part... Yeah, primary school days, really. And I love Craig Johnston. He made his debut in an FA Cup fourth round game against a very good Everton side um, in 77-78 FA Cup in a 3-2 win in front of about 40,000 at Ayrson Park. And he then quickly... Graham Sooners had left the month before mm. and Craig within a, not that season but the following season he became the mainstay of a central midfield of Johnston Proctor centre midfield with Armstrong on the left of it with Terry Cochran the right winger who played for Northern Ireland it was a really good midfield and Craig was he had a, that great ability to he played more central for Middlesbrough at Liverpool he played often played for a wide midfield position that's right yeah yeah but he had that great ability to burst and get through and, and be him. So I always felt Mark Proctor was someone who stayed and Craig would burst and he would score goals through that. And he, he was a superb player for Middlesbrough and Liverpool paid a lot of money for him in that, that summer of 81. Um, it was quite a contentious uh, move at the time, I think from memory. Um, but Craig, yeah, he, he was I used to watch the team train quite a lot, um, local to where I lived, and uh, Craig, Craig was always just—he was just one of my—he was a real hero of me as a young boy. And blimey, that that midfield soonest for me, pound for pound, big statement. I would say the best great British midfielder of all time. Yeah, I think there's a very strong argument to make for that. I think it's one of those things that's slight. Well, I would say sort of young generation perhaps aren't aware of. I'd never watched him play, but as a Liverpool fan, I've sort of grown up on stories of Sooness as a player. It was just absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Um, Adrian, you've been amazing. going to ask you the, the final question before I let you get off and, and get ready for Mallorca. Uh, and it's the final question I ask to all my guests on this podcast. If you could go back in time and alter one moment from your time sporting Middlesbrough up to now. It could be absolutely anything. It could be a transfer, a match, a goal, a very personal uh, experience. What would you change? Um, Emil Heskey wouldn't follow <laughs> the line in the last minute of injury time in the 97 League Cup final because we then win that cup. I then, I'm pretty confident we don't get relegated because momentum would have been 
positive. Um, and by not being relegated, who knows who would have come in to Steve was at it. And while the rest, the, the next few years were still amazingly exciting, it would have been fascinating to see how that would have played out. So that would probably be the one moment I would change. Um, great answer. Great answer. Adrian Bevington, thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Sashin. Thank you.